Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. When the province recently imposed its new 28-day lockdown to non-essential retail services in Toronto and Peel region, the impact was immediately felt by local retailers. Some have had to completely shut down, while others have found ways to stay open through online sales, curbside pickup, or other creative means. Since this lockdown began, many retailers have complained that these new measures are either too restrictive or too unfair compared to many of their big box counterparts that are able to remain open. And with the lucrative holiday season now upon us, the absence of in-store sales as a result of the lockdown could not have come at a worse time. And there's a growing fear that many of these retailers may not be able to survive much longer. In response, governments have provided financial support, and there's a rising upswell of neighborhood campaigns encouraging shoppers to buy local. All this has highlighted the important role small retailers play in strengthening our sense of community along our main streets and the positive impact they have on the success of our neighborhoods and city region. For the Canadian Urban Institute, this important issue has not gone unnoticed. In October of this year, they released an action report entitled In It Together, Bringing Back Canada's Main Streets. To talk about the report and the state of Main Street retail, I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Rowe, the President and CEO of the Canadian Urban Institute. So Mary, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Totally my pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks for asking me. Before we get into the details of your Main Street study, um, let me ask just a, a very basic or simple question. How do you characterize or what's your definition of, of Main Street retail and, and what are the types of businesses or services it includes? Well, first of all, there's no real one kind of typology of Main Street. We in the in the report talk about three different kinds. And so if you go to bringbackmainstreet.ca, you can find this report and read it in more detail, where we've got about uh, 90 recommendations pitched to the federal government, provincial governments, and to local governments. But there great Main Streets, the point we made when we first started this was what we were interested in is what needs to happen as we survive through COVID. What needs to happen to support local neighborhood economies? And, and to, because a main street can take a whole bunch of different forms. It can be a very busy street with, uh, uh, where there may actually be a transit line, um, where there's all sorts of uh, commercial activity and it may in fact attract tourists. Uh, you can also have a street that's uh, more modest, doesn't have, it doesn't attract tourists particularly. It serves mostly a local uh, market or local neighborhood. But you can also have main streets that don't really even look like streets. It might be a, uh, it might be a sort of strip mall. It might be a, in small communities, it could just be an intersection. It might just be a four corners where there was a bank and a church uh, or a faith institution of some kind. And it historically played a kind of gathering role. Maybe it's where the farmer's market was or is. Maybe it's near where your city hall is. Uh, but the point here is that it's, a, it's the sort of center, the heart of a community, and we were trying to make sure we used Main Street as a sort of short form, but we recognized that there are, for instance, historic parts of 
um, older cities where the, the sure there's a main street in the UK they call it a high street. Um, but in suburban communities that are younger, aren't as old, they're not 100 years old, they may not even be 60 years old, and it may be quite different. It may actually be a mall, um, or as I suggested, it could be an old industrial space that's been that's affordable and new entrepreneurs, new businesses have moved in, and then it starts to attract um, people who want to be present and want to you know want to patronize the businesses that are there. So. Um, I think that it's really a short form way of talking about your neighborhood and the commercial and social uh, amenities that are present in your neighborhood, which may include businesses, but will also will include um, different kinds of uh, shared spaces, clubs, could be a cultural facility. Um, certainly libraries are often on Main Street. So um, it's a mix. And we wanted to provide a, a sort of catch-all for people to have this conversation, here you are cooped up in your home. You're not going, you're not traveling as much to wherever your office is, or if in fact you have an office to go to, and but you have some kind of engagement with your street. And streets are the, you know, the largest percentage of public space in any community is a street. It's publicly owned, uh, and there are people that live on streets. There are people that go to streets to protest. There are people that go to streets to celebrate. So it's a really fundamental aspect of our, of, or of our organizing principle in terms of how our spatial communities set up. And so it's a pretty interesting moment, don't you think, about what's going to happen to the future of our main streets? I, I mean, I agree. And, and it's interesting you mentioned about the suburbs, because that was going to be my next question. Uh, you know, when I think about main streets, I, I my mind automatically shifts to a, a more urban context. Um, mm-hmm. And in the suburbs, um, I, I think more of, of a large, you know, big box or shopping malls. Um, when, when you're thinking about main street retail, does it typically include... Uh, independent retailers, uh, small mom-and-pop shops, even if it's in the suburbs? Or does it also include uh, some of those, uh, any of the chain retailers that happen to be on main streets? It's interesting, you know, we're a resident, uh, you know, the Canadian Revenue Institute's a national institution, and we're uh, engaging in week-long uh, uh, um, a series of meetings in different cities. And this week we've been in Calgary, the week before we were in Edmonton, where we really hear from local folks. And we um, had a session there on Bring Back Main Street and what the future of these sort of, ind- what are the challenges to the independent business sector? And that was a point that actually a number of them were making is they were saying, how come I can't attract um, some of the, the uh, uh, brands? So this particular person wanted to know why he couldn't attract fashion brands onto his main street. And that, you know, and we talked about, well, in some cities across the country, there are fashion brands on Main Streets, and in other cases, they've located in malls. And I think that this is a larger economic transition we're in because historically, some of the chain brands would have had an arrangement with a Cadillac Fairview or a, a, an Oxford Properties, one of the big owners of malls, and they would have had some kind of arrangement that allowed them to have 10 stores across the country or whatever it was. But even uh, the Cadillac Fairs and the Oxfords are rethinking the mall. And they're rethinking the idea that actually you want to bring commercial life out onto the street. It's safer out on the street. It's more accessible. And it, it contributes to the social life of the street. And, and, uh, and so I think we're going to see a trans, we're going to see a transformation. So, and the other thing I would say about suburbs is that, as I suggested, 
you know, uh, suburbs had a kind of uh, initial kind of conformity to them. But what we're finding is that people that live in suburbs are, they're watching their communities change where it might've been organized in a certain kind of way where all the commercial activity was to be in one particular area. But in fact, now we're finding that communities are saying, you know, actually I want my amenities closer. I don't want to have to get into my car and drive to the mall. It's too big of a hassle. And so parking lots are becoming much smaller and people are saying, I want to be able to, you know, I need, I think I need a sidewalk. I need sidewalks. I need suburbs to include sidewalks so that we can actually go somewhere or bike. I want to be able to ride my bike and I want to feel safe. So I think all of these things are starting to change because people that live in these communities are identifying what they actually need. And I think that's part of the bring back main street process for us is for us collectively to have this conversation about what do I need to have on my main street? And the pandemic has made this whole new conversation, you know, main streets, not to, you don't want to generalize, but there were challenges to main streets across the country before COVID. A lot of people doing shopping online through Amazon, or maybe they go to a big box store once, once every two weeks and they load up. So that was already starting to happen and that was causing a rupture on main streets. But I think through the pandemic, people have started to be much more conscious of where is my purchasing dollar going? I think about this in my neighborhood. I live on a main street in Toronto. And I think about, I go and get a chai latte five times a week, four times a week, let's say. And I figure out what the mass of that is. And I realize that I am actually contributing to somebody hanging on to a job by going there. And I think that this kind of tangible understanding of where is your purchasing dollar going? If you have money, if you've got disposable income to go and buy a coffee, it's not just that I want that coffee, it's that I'm keeping somebody employed by deciding to do it that way. And I think those kinds of conversations are important for us to all be having as we create whatever the urban form is going to look like post-COVID. And I think it's going to look like more amenities and more services closer to where people are, that proximity and adjacency, that we're going to double down now on investing in those kinds of ways. You, you can see it by how important libraries are, community centers, schools, uh, often on main streets. And it's also coffee shops, uh, stores to buy provisions, um, different kinds of uh, shops that, uh, that really give an entrepreneur an opportunity to try something. They're never going to, you know, you historically have found small spaces on Main Street, which are affordable. And so an entrepreneur, a potter, somebody who's got a, you know, a photo shop or whatever it is, that they can afford those initial rents because they're affordable. They can't, they're never going to go into a mall but they could afford to do it. And I think I always talk about tinkering space, you know, you need, you need tinkering space and we have to be creative about imagining where those spaces are artists, different kinds of things that make neighborhoods really vibrant. But I also think we probably should be thinking about, well, what public services can start to be distributed? Um, Does that have to all be concentrated? Could that be in fact distributed so that uh, the same way that you see, um, uh, kind of multiple uses, you know, you can see pharmacies now are becoming more diverse than what they offer, but, you know, maybe I'm going to be able to get my flu shot in my grocery store. You can actually already. So all that kind of con- sort of imaginative ways. I'm wondering about co-working spaces, for instance, are we going to, we don't all want to sit there. Like I'm sitting at my dining room table. I'm kind of tired of that. <laughs> um, it might be nice to uh, have a co-working space that was four blocks for me that I could walk to. 
Mm. and could put a couple of afternoons in there. You know what I mean? So I think it's a really a management time. And I really challenge all of us, designers, planners, engineers, developers, housing providers to start thinking more and more about how do we actually commit ourselves to creating complete neighborhoods, get the math to work so that we can create complete neighborhoods as we come out of COVID. Well, you mentioned, um, you mentioned coffee shops, and I want to include restaurants as, as part of that because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, an article that came out just this past weekend in the Globe and Mail that was written by Jen Ag, who's a very well-known and outspoken... I read it. I read uh, it. Yeah, she's yeah. a very well-known, outspoken restaurant owner. She owns five restaurants in this in Toronto. Um and she wrote a very raw and honest account of the challenges and struggles her business has faced and what she and her staff are doing to try to cope. But beyond the issues her business is facing, she also shared her thoughts on the importance of Main Street retail. And, and I, I, there's a, there was a really interesting paragraph, and I want to quote, I want to read that. She said, Toronto is only the vibrant, alive place it is because of the small businesses that anchor neighborhoods. Think about where you live and all the nearby places that make it feel like your neighborhood. Now imagine when the snow thaws in spring and we come out of hibernation, grateful for some sun and 14-degree days, and all that's left is a grocery store and a Starbucks. Who would want to live there, she asks. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if you can expand on her comment and explain why... Main Street retail is so important for the health and prosperity of our local neighborhoods and of our city as a whole. Sure. Well, the other thing I loved about that Janag article was when she described what it's like to go out and have a meal with mm. other people. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it the way she thought of it, and I was I was so appreciative of how she talked about that it's a luxury and that you indulge in that moment. And of course, there's lots of people that don't don't experience that and can't experience that. And so uh, by virtue of their income or their circumstance. And I think it's important for those of us to, to think of, yeah, as we're being deprived, to realize that there's a big chunk of the population that's deprived all the time, post-pandemic, not pandemic. But um, that the point she's making about, you know, a really successful Main Street is one that looks like nowhere else. It's sort of antithetical to the mall, which is that comment I was making earlier about the economics of a mall meant that you went into a mall in the same eight stores we're in every mall. Uh, and so you would have a moment when you're standing and thinking, well, where am I? Am I in Fairview? Am I in Sherway Gardens? Am I in, uh, uh, where, which mall am I in? I think that the main street feel, and the, the thing that's fantastic about many, many Canadian cities is that these main streets often have some kind of ethnicity historically. So uh, they may have been an Italian district or a Portuguese district, or they may now be. Um, and, and in fact, what happens too is that that may have in fact been the settlement pattern, but now what we see is that certain kinds of uh, ethnic businesses or cultural businesses, one sets up and then before you know it, there are six of them, which is fantastic. So uh, where do you want Ethiopian food? Will you go to a neighborhood? Where do you want Korean food? You go to a neighborhood and there's a sort of a congregation of that. And and then, then you know that you're, you know, you know you're in Roncesvalles, you know you're in Queen Street East by virtue of the nature of the, the businesses. Um, and I think, but I do think that's going to change. So Gerard Street East, for instance, for many time, for many years was predominantly South Asian, but that, that is changing. Uh, and the community may have, in fact, it doesn't live, it's the same as Chinatown. People aren't constant Chinese community. There's still lots of Chinese that live around Spadina Avenue, but they've also, um, you know, moved into other neighborhoods that have become more diverse. And so now you see 
lots of interesting South Asian and Chinese food in Scarborough or in Markham or in Etobicoke. So I, I hear what Jen is saying that, you know, we have, you, you, you form favorites and you, um, it's interesting, you know, I was in New Orleans after Katrina and I learned an enormous amount from the local folks there who were coming to terms with what was going to happen to the city of New Orleans after that extraordinary flood. And one of the people that I was so moved by is an artist, Karen Gadbois, who started a blog called Squandered Heritage, never used, never really used a computer prior to this. This is 15 years ago. Not everybody was. And she uh, started blogging and taking note of, of landmarks, just domestic landmarks, because the street signs all were collapsed after the floods there. And so you no longer knew what street, but what she realized is that people's landmarks were, you turn left at Tony's, you turn right at, she said, you know, you'd send your kids to school and it wouldn't be to look for the street sign. It would be, you know, go to so-and-so's house and then turn left. And then you'll see the Lebanese restaurant on your right. These ways that we attach ourselves and get a sense of belonging in a community are associated with what, what our experience has been, what our visual memory would be of a place. Great empanada here really fabulous. I, I happen to live uh, at, I, and I'll just arguably say, I live near the bakery that has the best croissant in Toronto. I know there's a big competition for this, but I'm just telling you, that's why that, that's croissant. And, and that, that is a mark, you know. I, in fact, I'll tell people to come to visit me. Uh, okay, just go out, turn right, and then turn left to Bonjour Brioche. Like, that's a Degrassi Street, but at the landmark is the business. And I think you're right that the thing that's, that's a, there's a little bit of a nuance here, because businesses do change. You know, uh, 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 I live where I live, two doors down from me, there was a Chinese restaurant there forever. And that family just got tired and just didn't want to do it anymore. So it's not, not always are these businesses forced out or and sometimes people just, there's a cycle to a business and, uh, and nobody, you know, the kids don't want it. This is one of the challenges I think is that if you've been in a business for a long time, right below me is a barber and that guy is tired. He's in his eighties and his kids don't want it. So the challenge is going to be, how do how does that store turn over and another entrepreneur comes and takes it and turns into something interesting and what i of course fear is that every empty space is going to be taken over by a new marijuana store since that seems to be the only sector that's really growing at the moment but i and so i think we as municipal governments people at your listeners who work for municipal government and their developer colleagues need to be thinking really imaginatively about the economics of these small businesses what kinds of tax incentives do we need or tax breaks or tax treatment do we need so that entrepreneurs can come into come into those spots and create something really fabulously interesting and unusual and boy what a cool shop what an interesting thing or what a cool place um, so that we're not in a situation where everything gets homogenized which is i think what jen's getting at but in, in this but in this day and age and specifically now with mm-hmm. so many um uh, restaurants and retailers closing um you know i think the message I'm getting out of it is, you know, it, with a significant drop in, in a number of these independently owned establishments, whether they're bars or restaurants or, or to a larger extent, any retail establishments, will will people continue to want to live in the city? Does the city still have an appeal? Um, do we oh, lose some? God, of course they will. Of course they will. Cities are 4,000 years old, for God's sake. There's a reason people gravitate to cities. And we've had global pandemics before. We had a cholera epidemic. We had the Spanish flu. We had a period of time when, when we were still driving horses and buggies and methane was taking over the cities. And then all of a sudden, 
we realize how to fix that. So those kinds of apocryphal predictions are just kind of silly. Sorry, in my opinion, you know, people, the, the benefit of congregation, of intersection, of exchange is indelible. We're, we're social beings. Read Stephen Johnson's emergency talks about the interconnectedness of, of uh, people and, and in the internet and ants. He compares us. It's just a natural phenomenon of which we're part of. So we're not going to start, stop. We're not going to stop swarming. It, it's just, just no way. What we have to do is find other ways to do it, ways that are more resilient, where we can absorb an extraordinary shock like a global pandemic, which I think we're doing remarkably well at, frankly. I know it's extraordinarily difficult and there's been huge loss of life and terrible, terrible tragedy, but we are also finding ways to be imaginative and cope in an imaginative way. And I don't think, I mean, there are obviously decisions that people may have had in the back of their mind. They're having a couple more kids. They're at a different stage of life. They realize they don't have to go into the office as frequently. So gee, why wouldn't they decide to live somewhere else? That's fine too. Um, but there are a gazillion people who will continue to live in cities because their families are here. Their cultural community is here. The opportunities are here. They like the energy and vibe of a city. And don't forget too, there are always people coming in to cities always. So there's always a kind of in and out going on. People are moving out and people are moving in. And the other thing I think we need to remember is that we're in, the, in a state of extraordinary climate challenge around the world and there will be continued international migration for sure into safe havens and safe places of which Canadian cities are. So again, the pandemic has caused an extraordinary challenge and there will be new challenges ahead. I don't know whether this will be the greatest challenge that we'll have faced in our lifetime. I don't know. I, I, I wonder if there isn't another one around the corner. Are we going to learn from this one? Are we going to figure out how to be more uh, flexible and adaptive so that when we have situations like this, we can quickly adjust? I think part of that is investing in main streets because you need to have resources close, proximal, that you can walk to, that are safe, that shared spaces that feel comfortable for people of different means, different circumstances to share those public spaces together. Don't you think one of the most challenging and I think poignant lessons through COVID is the, the amount of support that we lacked and for, for people that did not have a home to go to, people that could not stay at home, could not shelter in place, and where shelters weren't actually safe, suddenly put into a situation where tents, encampments, and we didn't even have uh, washroom facilities in outdoor spaces for those people to be able to cope. So let's hope, hope, hope that we've taken that seriously so that we recognize the infrastructure that needs to be in place for everyone if we're going to be in these kinds of periodic situations where we can't move the way we're used to. So I don't, I'm really not a fan of repeating Mark Twain's rumors of my demise are largely exaggerated. I think that cities are here to stay, but they're going to change. Cities don't stay, don't stay, don't, don't stay the same. No city stays the same. So, um, I guess to date, what have been, what in your mind have been the, the major impacts to, to uh, Main Street retailers as a result of COVID? And, and what has been um, uh, the quality of government response, at least to, to keep them afloat? If you look at the data, you'll find that a lot of the closures were chains. And this is, again, borne out uh, by my experience in New Orleans, where the chains were the last to come back. Because chains were chains have have large um, analytical analytics that they're running and they're determining where their markets are and they're making decisions that are often very very far removed from the communities in which they operate. So, 
Um, that's one piece. The second thing is if, uh, if your business had a local clientele, if you cultivated a business with a local clientele, you've been able to somehow cope. It's not ideal, but you've been able to cope. You know, there's been really, really aggressive efforts to go digital, um, to, uh, 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 to find curbside and different kinds of safe ways of doing this. I do think the lockdowns are very difficult because they do disadvantage uh, small businesses. Um, and for some reason, we're keeping large big box stores open. There's all sorts of theories about why that's happening. But it's a, a, it's a, it's, and to me, it's a dubious kind of policy decision, which I'm hoping when we come through, people will be able to analyze and be able to substantiate that it wasn't the best decision. I, for instance, have stores around me where I can stand at the door and see that there are two people. And that feels to me much safer, uh, an option for me with my mask to go in and make my purchase in a very limited environment than going into large stores where there's, uh, where there isn't a volume limit, for instance. And I don't, so I don't quite understand why that decision was made. There's just a bunch of reasons as I suggested. Um, so I think we're seeing the businesses that have a local clientele will find a way. The other thing we're seeing is in, a, you know, you mentioned restaurants and of course we've all gone to delivery and different kinds of pickup. Um, again, one of the, the, the challenging aspects of delivery is that there are these large um, tech enabled platforms that provide delivery services and then have uh, end up taking a disproportionate cut from the volume, which disadvantages the restaurant. But I'm noticing that lots of uh, locals are finding ways around that. So you don't have to use one of those services. You can, there may be a local delivery service that's surfaced or uh, people take more steps to do pickup themselves or all the different ways in which restaurants are finding, you know, gift cards and buying clubs and food baskets. And uh, I think a lot of, and of course, bottle shops which uh, you kind of shake your head and say, well, why haven't we doing this from the beginning? Um, because it just makes such sense to be able to buy a bottle of wine or a beer when you get your food. So I, again, I think out of these extraordinary circumstances comes a lot of innovation, a lot of experimentation. So it's just extraordinarily difficult. And at a cost, there will be casualties, uh, as Jen Ag described, and, uh, it, and there are situations where some kinds of enterprises won't be able to, they just won't be able to cope. But what you have to hope is that in the meantime, we're providing some income support through CERB and rental assistance. It took government a while to figure out quite what it could do and what was, what it could actually get out the door and administer. Um, and again, is it, is it ultimately then bring back Main Street? We raise a bunch of questions about long-term recommendations, which has to do uh, with zoning and permitting and, I wonder if we're going to see some kind of significant rethinking of how we zone Main Streets, what the reliance of the city is on the property tax coming up from Main Street retailers. Obviously, there's a big, big policy question about how can taxation revenue be derived from online purchasing that accrues to the local government, because at the moment it doesn't. And then there's, it just boils down to yours and my purchasing decisions and how motivated are we as purchasers, as consumers, how motivated are we to make our dollars work in a way that benefits the local community and keeps the person that's in the coffee shop two doors down from me employed. So and I think that's a very profound, important challenge. And I hope that everyone's taking it seriously. Is this, is this one of the ideas that's um, identified in your, in the uh, action report? 
uh, that we all start that we start looking at shifting our spend. Mm-hmm. Or as sure. you were, I mean, yeah, or or you said revisiting maybe the zoning of uh, of Main Street. Yeah, I mean, I think we raise all sorts of questions. I think that about whether or not municipal governments can look for more creative ways around the world. That's happening around the world. They and even before COVID, Barcelona, Venice, some of the great great cities of the world have had to look at how do they sustain um, having unique businesses on, on main streets and at, on, and at street level um, because the, because and that may mean that it has to be a different kind of leasing arrangement. You know, you always want to think about what are the impediments to secure tenancy for small businesses. One of them is, can you create loan funds for, where they can buy their business and then they're not vulnerable to the landlord saying, out you go, I'm going to sell to some developer and wait, or, or worse, I'm going to wait and let the place stay empty. That's one issue that I would have is vacancies. Are we, that's what I would wonder with Jen. Are we going to see um, spaces go vacant and then sit vacant for a long time? New, that's, that's been a problem in New York City where I used to live for a number of years. And I noticed that uh, this week uh, the mayor of New York has announced uh, an investment program to allow businesses to borrow money to buy their uh, operators to buy the building in which the business that they're in and the building in which they're located. I think these are all instruments. That, these are things we should have been looking at beforehand, but now COVID will force us to. Because again, a main street is about so much more than the commercial activity. The commercial activity is critically important, but what Jen, what you reinforced, it's about a sense of identity, of belonging. It's a safer street if there's lots of activity on that street. It's a street where conviviality happens. It creates a sense of, spiritedness and and joy it's part of our joyful experience of urban life so we have a lot at stake here not just the livelihoods of those independent entrepreneurs but the vibrancy that makes a city a city and it's so interesting you mentioned that because i live uh also in the urban part of the city in the west end very close to ross's valves and just a few weeks ago on a on a on a monday morning uh, my um, my walk with my daughter to her school we we noticed that every single storefront was covered in uh, brown paper with big words for lease um and at, at first it it we were, you know, we were stunned, and we thought that every store had shut down. But actually, it turned out to be a, a local BIA marketing campaign to basically expose um, or to to showcase how vulnerable these independent retailers uh, uh, are to. Uh, uh, to the current conditions and that they're hanging on and what happens to the, the streetscape if um, if they're all abandoned. So, you know, I know that, wasn't that brilliant? It was brilliant. It was a brilliant, brilliant act, I thought. Let me tell you another brilliant act. The Downtown Business Association in Calgary is offering uh, anybody that, that cancels their Amazon Prime membership, they're offering to give them 80 bucks of uh, buying power for local businesses in Calgary. Oh, fantastic. I mean, these are just smart, smart, symbolic ways to remind people, wait a sec, this is your neighborhood, this is your main street, this is, this is your economy, this is your city. And whether you spend 10 bucks or 100 bucks, you can choose how you spend that. And I, I think that it's a, this is a profound wake-up call for urbanists. You know, we've, urbanism has supported some, some very damaging practices that stem back to colonialism and, um, and exclude people. Um, you know, we, we, exclude, we um, isolated uses. People work here, they live there. We've created communities where 
that where there's overcrowding, where there's not good density, and it's compromised the city's capacity to be an equitable, just, and and uh, fluid place that's constantly growing and in creative new ways. I don't mean necessarily growing in numbers, but just evolving in creative new ways. And so all of this has been brought to people's attention in a fresh way, whether it's a local business or it's a challenge for a particular community that may be racialized or uh, or disadvantaged by income, all those different kinds of ways that we exclude folks, people with disabilities. And uh, I think that we just got a lot that we need to think about as we rebuild in new kinds of ways. City government is part of it, municipal government is part of it. The development sector has a lot of levers that it can pull here. So does the financial sector in terms of what we what we underwrite, what conditions we want to create to allow this kind of recovery. But I, I think we all have a sense that this is going to happen block by block, one community at a time within a city. And there's a lot of agency that we can have here as individuals. Well, I, I, I get the sense that you are, uh, despite the conditions that retailers are facing right now, that you, you, you have a, uh, well, what I would say would be a, a more optimistic tone than, than Jen Ag. There was one other line that really struck me in the article. She said that, um, in respect to the restaurant industry, that she said, a dinosaur-like extinction is on the way and winter is the meteor. And then she goes on to say that she imagined 60% of restaurants wouldn't make it when that, that was her thought when the COVID started. And now she said it, it's starting to feel like wishful thinking. So she had a little bit more of a pessimistic outlook on the future. And it, it's, it's nice to hear that you're looking at it um, a little bit more holistically. And, uh, and, well, and it, it, look, to be fair, I'm not staring down the huge, huge challenge that a gen egg would be staring down. Yeah. She's got hundreds of employees. Sure. She doesn't have the cash sales that she's used to. Um, she's got all sorts of costs that aren't going away. And so, and she's, I'm sure exhausted. Plus she has a disabled husband, right? Like this is a person, we all have personal circumstance and uh, she disclosed that in the article and described all that she was dealing with. So I don't want to in any way suggest that I'm Pollyanna next to, Someone like Jen Ag, who has been a pioneer in restaurants in Toronto and has had opened several quotes, several, and is a, a, is a wise and sage voice on this about what she's really dealing with. And she has colleagues across the city who are lamenting. So it's incumbent on local government, provincial and federal governments to be doing, they're the ones that have the money at the moment, um, to be doing what they can to support people like Jen Ag as we get through the next several months that are going to continue to be challenging then it's incumbent on people like you and me to be thinking smartly about how we, those of us that still have jobs, how do we use our money to keep our, the businesses and the restaurants near us afloat as best we can, as best we can. Uh, and then I think it's incumbent on all of us to start imagining, well, what are the permanent changes that need to be put in motion so that we don't, so that we are more able to cope with these kinds of challenges, how do we recover from, cause these are going to be hard knocks, you know, just for the people think, well, the vaccine comes, so we're done. Well, that won't be the case. Like these are long, long, long wounds that we've, that have been uh, committed here. And it's going to take a long time to heal. It's going to take a long time to heal, but we all need to engage in what that healing collective process will look like. And I hope that, I hope that Jen's statistic is a bleak prediction and that we'll find that more find ways. I, it is remarkable to me when I look at the restaurants around me, that are, have done so many extraordinary things and who would have thought that everybody would be able to, that any could do this. 
but it's not going to be everyone. So there will be casualties, but there will also be, you know, that when you say I'm optimistic, I, what I am is I've, I just, and when you said cities are dead, I, you know, people are, the p- people are remarkably resilient and resourceful. And in the aggregate, when you come together and start to figure it out, that's what we have to do though. It's all hands on deck here and everybody has to figure out what their lane is and then start, start peddling. So do you think that after we get through all of this, that Main Street's Main Street retail will, will bounce back and actually get stronger and more resilient than ever before? Again, I'm just not a good prognosticator. I think Main Streets are changing. I think that they were changing. I think they'll continue to change. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll find the right mix of public policy and financial instruments and consumer will and consumer decisions that will enable them to re- be reimagined. I think the same is happening with downtown cores. The downtowns are going through an extraordinary rupture now, and I don't. I think I'm sure they will survive. But what will they survive doing? Will we see in both cases? Are we going to see more complete neighborhoods? Will we see more mixed use? Will we see different kinds of activities, different kinds of businesses, different kinds of things happening on main streets and happening on the 36th floor? You know. We have to be open to that. Government has to find ways to enable that. And then we as consumers have a lot of power in terms of how we spend our money and use our time. Well, last question. The report that you put together back in, in October, what what ultimately are you are you hoping for to come out of that report and as recommendations that it would be read by all, all the key important, uh, the key decision makers or the broader public? Well, you know, the Urban Institute is a 30-year-old organization focused on the best in urban development and uh, in Canada and how do we harness that and connect that and, you know, publicize what the best practices are so we can learn from each other. And since I've been here, I've put a focus on connected tissue across the country. So uh, what I'd be hopeful about is that people that are in a position where they can affect public policy would... Uh, people that are in the planning profession, in the design profession, uh, engineers, architects, various folks that are engaged in actually doing city building, land use planning, um, and then the development community, that we would collectively start to have conversations about what each of us can do. How do we each contribute to re-investing uh, in, in this and understanding why it's such a fundamental part of community life and civic life and urban life, and that it's going to require uh, imagination on all sides and different kinds of approaches from all those different sectors I just mentioned. So I'm hoping those folks will read it. And then there are all sorts of uh, 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 buy local campaigns that are going on. And uh, I think it's about buy local, stay local, be local, love local. It's not just about money. It's also about inhabiting where you live and inhabiting the communities around you. I'm hoping that, I, I think it's hard with winter, but I think that we need to draw strength from each other and find ways to continue to have some relationship with our neighbor. And that's really what this is about, is strengthening our relationships with our neighbors. Well, as much as I'm going to try to always support local, I will actually make a trip to your end of the city to try out the best baked goods, as you say, mm-hmm. and uh, support... Brioche is the place. You, you can okay. tell me whether I was wrong. Okay. Um, this has been really uh, a really great, interesting discussion, uh, Mary. I, I appreciate your time. And... Um, 
uh, fingers crossed that um, everyone in the industry and at large uh, gets through this uh, as unscathed as possible. So um, thanks again. My pleasure. We're all going to be scathed, but I think the thing is, as you say, can we can we learn and can we can we find ways to support one another through this transition in in ways that are uh, appreciative of those that are the most vulnerable. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for asking me, Jeremy, and I appreciate all the leadership that ULI is taking on here. I know that your members have been really serious about thinking about what the implications are for urbanism. So. Yeah, okay. lots to think about. To for, for sure, there's a, there's a ton to think about, and there'll be more more of these kind of discussions in, in various formats uh, through ULI and and also through the, the Toronto Region Board of Trade and other organizations. It's a really important topic, and thanks to you and your staff for um, putting that report together and, and engaging um, others from across the country. Thanks again for My your time. Pleasure. Okay, thanks, Jeremy. Okay. Bye-bye.